Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back. Thanks, David. It's uh, it's downright chilly in Alabama now. Is it? That means it must be like sub-freezing in Maine. It's, no, it's lovely here today. It's like 65 oh, and sunny. It's lovely. Oh, well, good. Yeah, it's like peak season. Uh, and also back is uh, Christina Monlos, a senior editor covering the brand marketing world and also a producer on the podcast. Welcome back, Christina. I'm happy to be here. You always sound so excited. I don't know. That's my voice. <laughs> I know. It's like, this is my base level of excitement. The uh, And Katie Richards, a staff writer covering uh, the brand world. I don't think we've had you back since you switched beats. Uh, you are now covering... I don't think so. Yeah, you are longtime agency writer for us now, covering uh, brand marketing. Uh, man, how's that switch been? I love the brands; can't get enough of them. <laughs> oh brand. no! Honestly, that Katie, your voice just then sounded like you—you <laughs> you were like, I don't know, the way that you sound is is like you're it's picking like, it's up like when I hear one of my kids <laughs> like say what? something that I like say. You're, <laughs> <laughs> like you're picking up my monotone. Yes. Terribleness. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. It's great. I love it. It's so fun. It, in it fairness, is. it's it's just life beating everyone down in equal measure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we are going to have some special guests coming in in just a minute. We've got the senior copywriter and senior art director team from Barton F. Graff behind such campaigns as the new long-form Hinge campaign uh, and the Yes Good campaign for Emerald Nuts. We're going to talk to them about kind of storytelling in the modern market marketing world. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really fun talk. But first, the news. All right. Well, we saw the resurfacing uh, in the last few days of a figure of high controversy about 18 months ago. It's hard to believe it's been so long. Uh, JWT's former global CEO, Gustavo Martinez, uh, has uh, he resigned uh, amid a lawsuit accusing him of racist, sexist, anti-Semitic behavior, just about everything. Uh, and he resigned about a uh, about a week after the lawsuit, uh, the discrimination lawsuit was filed by his own own global PR director, uh, Aaron Johnson. And uh, we haven't really heard from him much since then, except for updates on the lawsuit. Uh, well, in the last uh, few days, he has resurfaced in Spain, where he is uh, running kind of Spanish operations and overseeing a uh, kind of an overhaul in how parent company WPP uh, is running its operations there, this JWT's parent company. They did not 
get rid of uh, Martinez at the time uh, of the lawsuit. They continue to say that, you know, they deny in court uh, that the accusations are true, although the few times that there has been evidence uh, to back up uh, the complaints against him, uh, they have shown that he did make an anti-Semitic comment about his neighborhood having uh, too many Jews in it. Uh, there is a videotape of him making a joke, one would say, about being raped, uh, which, uh, so, you know, they have not had the best luck in terms of uh, evidence, uh, you know, proving, bearing out in his favor, everything so far has certainly fallen the other way. But he remains on, and now it sounds like he is running Spanish operations for WPP. Uh, what, I, what I'm curious about to bring this up, and this obviously sparked a lot of conversation this week specifically because of uh, Harvey Weinstein and so much of the discussion around the industry's tolerance of people who harass, uh, who, uh, you know, in some cases assault. Uh, you know, to be clear, he's not accused of assaulting anyone, but he is accused of uh, various types of harassment and discriminatory behavior. I kind of just assumed he was cooling his heels somewhere uh, and just waiting for this lawsuit to be determined, uh, and then his fate would probably be uh, determined. But the, we got we saw a lot of uh, backlash on uh, Twitter, especially in light of the Me Too uh, hashtag and the, the sparked by the Harvey Weinstein, uh, you know, revelations. And so this just, to me, and, and I'm curious to get the panel's thoughts on this, it just seemed kind of the worst possible time for this this to for him to resurface at WPP, because it really does seem like uh, they kept someone on and they're still letting him interact with clients and with employees uh, amid this. Uh, what did you guys think of this situation? I, I think it's the worst time for the news to resurface. I I think Patrick in his reporting said that this has been going on for months. Like he's he's been sort of quietly there doing this since, um, since January, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this um, is like almost a year. Yeah. I, I I mean I'm not surprised. At, at the end of the day, like. One, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if in two years we're going to see a movie produced by Weinstein and it's fine. Um, you know, we have Mel Gibson in Daddy's Home 2 ads right now. I mean, this is what happens most of the time and this is why people are tired and upset is that, you know, men are punished by being like, oh, okay, I'm out of the limelight for like a little bit. And I'm not even really going to apologize, and I'm going to come back. Like it's yeah. Well, the crazy thing to me about this whole situation is that he never really was like he was taken out of his role at JWT, but like he wasn't really reprimanded, and it felt like there was so much backlash at the time when all of this was coming out, and Aaron Johnson was you know filing her case, and the WPP and JWT like really didn't say anything to like dismiss his behavior and say like this is bad behavior they just kind of took his side and so the fact that he is still working for them again doesn't surprise me as Christina said like it just it's shady and weird and kind of baffling but it's not really surprising to me well it's also like with the industry that we cover with agencies I really worry about the Aaron Johnson case meaning that more people are not going to come forward because consider the way that she's been treated think think about that I mean it's it's humiliating and it's also uh demoralizing I don't know yeah and it's I mean there is still the very real uh feeling that you're committing career suicide by raising any sort of high profile 
uh, lawsuit against your own company because even if even if people generally support your cause, at a certain level of executive, they're going to be like, I don't know if we really want someone who's litigious. You know what I mean? And so it's like even setting aside the nature of the of the allegations, any lawsuit you bring forward against your employer uh, is a is a, a bold act, but especially this one. And and I think it's clear now that she felt empowered to come forward because of this evidence that she knew was out there, that she had witnesses to the anti-Semitic comment, that they had video of the, the rape comment. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the lawsuit is still going. Uh, you know, th- this does highlight this, and we talked about this recently with Fearless Girl and with the client's uh, PR kind of disaster of uh, finding out that State Street owed uh, millions of dollars to women that it had paid unfairly. And it puts them in this in this weird bind where the client is not admitting that they did anything wrong. They legally are saying, we don't uh, admit to any of this which really limits your ability to do much about it. In this case, WPP is standing behind Martinez. They have stood behind him maybe somewhat quietly uh, this whole time. Uh, But it's because, you know, this is all playing out in court. And to get rid of him uh, would probably mean admitting fault. You know, they'd instantly almost be losing the the case. Uh, So, you know, this can go down two ways. Either Aaron wins the lawsuit, and at that point it's hard to imagine that they would really keep Martinez on, uh, or she loses. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, not to say that that should or shouldn't happen. I'm objective on the facts of this case. It's just that that's going to cast quite a pall over the rest of the industry of people stepping forward with these kinds of cases. I I mean, I I don't know what else to say other than that it's sad. Uh, It just feels sad. (laughs) All right. Well, on that uh, positive note, let's move on to... uh, uh, We we did have some interesting news on the TV front, the streaming front, the kind of evolution of television. Uh, Nielsen, uh, which, of course, we all know is a uh, kind of the one of the gold standards of ratings for TV and has been, but they, like many ratings uh, services, has had a hard time adapting to the uh, the streaming world uh, for a lot of different reasons. The companies that run these streaming services, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or, you know, they are very proprietary about their software and all that. Well, now Nielsen announced they can finally have ratings for Netflix shows. Uh, they've created a thing called SVOD content ratings, SVOD being uh, streaming video on demand. So this SVOD content ratings system is one that their clients can subscribe to. It's supposedly going to feature all sorts of different streaming services, but for now will only feature Netflix uh, coming out of the gate. And even then, only certain shows on Netflix. I mean, it sounds like quite a bit of them. It's all the original programming. It's a back catalog of a lot of TV shows. Uh, but it won't be everything on on Netflix. So obviously still a few caveats, but this uh, is kind of the update of a long-running story uh, we've talked about here on the podcast a bit, is that Netflix does everything it can to keep those numbers private and to keep them from getting out there. It does not like people knowing anything about its numbers. And sure enough, Nielsen is doing this over Netflix's dead body. They, They are not cooperating at all. This is not a partnership. Uh, it's actually kind of fascinating, all the weird little backflips that uh, that Nielsen is doing to try to measure this stuff. Basically, they create these video signatures based on the content, based on the show. So, you know, a snippet of what the video looks like. Uh, this is similar, I think, to uh, the way copyright is enforced uh, on YouTube is, you know, people use these signatures to make sure people aren't uploading copyrighted uh, material from another TV show. Uh, so they use those, and then they basically track on the the TVs of the Nielsen families how much is watching. So this only works on TV. 
does not work on mobile, does not work on tablet, which, of course, a lot of people watch Netflix on those. So, again, a lot of caveats, not quite perfect. Netflix pretty pissed about this whole thing. Uh, They told Adweek for our report on this, uh, the data that Nielsen is reporting is not accurate, not even close, and does not reflect the viewing of these shows on Netflix, which is pretty similar to everything they've said every time a service has come out with uh, any any of those. Uh, I'm curious if you feel, you know, on the panel, if we feel that we're close to cracking this nut and and that, uh, you know, I think when you say I watched television last night, you know, nine times out of ten, we probably mean we watch Netflix or we watch Hulu or we watch streaming, and it, and these services have to keep up. I have no idea whether we're close or not. I mean, this is the, the whole ratings uh, world is so opaque to me. I mean, so Netflix doesn't want its its numbers out there uh, for various reasons, right? David, you know more about this than than I do. I think it's largely just to keep it proprietary, so that they're not creating any sort of apples to apples measurement system that pits them against their competitors. Right. Uh, and and, and, yeah. and they don't need to get the numbers out there because they're not running ads. They don't need to send that data to advertisers or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I just think it's funny that there's this big standoff between Netflix and everybody else over this, you know, and, and the Nielsen's of the world are clearly, you know, flummoxed about how to deal with, with, with a, you know, these streaming services. And, and, and to say that it's not even close to accurate, you know, I imagine that's you know that's going to be a black eye on on the Nielsen ratings. Whatever whatever the ratings say, it's going to have an asterisk. Well, I'm sure everyone else in the TV world is just really tired of every single new Netflix show coming out. Um, the reports being like, "This is a hit. This is a hit. This is a hit." But you you don't have any numbers to back it up. How many people actually watch Stranger Things? We don't know. Yeah, is it like a Mad Men where it's like celebrated, but only like a hundred thousand people watched it every week? So, so Nielsen has had a service like this for years, for uh, three years, um, maybe almost four. But the problem is, it could only measure the shows that the client itself had put on Netflix. So, you know, if ABC or whoever hires them, then it could measure the performance of ABC shows on Netflix. Uh, but you know, the client was like, "That's great." Now we know how we do. How do we compare to anyone else? Mm-hmm. And that was the question they could never answer. And so that that's the hope here. Uh, but it is one of these kind of under-discussed battlegrounds of the TV industry. And it really does highlight, to Tim's point, that if you don't run advertising, you really have a lot of strength in this space. Like Netflix isn't beholden to anyone, and be, and transparency doesn't mean anything to them. You know, it's the hottest buzzword in the industry. And they really don't give a crap because— What's in it for them? They don't have to verify any numbers, you know, other than on the back end with basically proving to these companies that license their content to Netflix, uh, you know, that that they got the views that made it worth it. Uh, but other than that, they don't owe anybody anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's definitely one of these where we will, you know, this has been a, it's a huge uh, rollout for, despite all these caveats we've talked about, it's a huge rollout for Nielsen. I have a feeling it'll be spectacularly popular. But again, it's one of those things where how accurate is it? I don't know. I mean, even if it's like 20% accurate, that's better than the 0% that a lot of people had access to before. Uh, so it's a, it's like the early days of social measurement and sentiment analysis and all these things where the the actual accuracy of it is kind of garbage, but you just, you're happy to take what you can get because it's better than having nothing. I would just like to point out one thing, which is that um, for our dear listeners, our podcast doc, which uh, David Greiner put together, has this uh, little bit in here where it says, Nielsen is doing this over Netflix's dead body. (laughs) 
And I appreciate that and wanted you guys to appreciate it too. What the, the, yeah, the, I wanted to make sure that people understood, that you guys understood how <laughs> they're not cool with this. No. Was, no. <laughs> really um, unhappy. Uh, all right. Well, it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show each week, ads worth watching. All right, this is the part of the show where Tim recaps the best ads of the week. Tim, what do you have for us? So Burger King made an anti-bullying ad this week, uh, and it's actually one of the better better uh, examples in this genre that we've seen. It's actually more of a stunt than an ad. Uh, so there's a three-minute video. It was taken mostly by hidden cameras, and there's kind of two parts to it. it it's going to sound kind of goofy at first also, but um, it was shot in a Los Angeles Burger King a couple months ago. Uh, and part of it involves a group of kids harassing another kid. This is a, a high school junior, uh, and and all the kids are actors, but the, the the Burger King patrons who were at this restaurant were not actors, so they think that what's going on is real. And then separately, uh, in the kitchen, you have this BK employee who's uh, also an actor, by the way, who's quote-unquote bullying uh, a Whopper Jr. In fact, all the Whopper Jr. sandwiches that he's making, he kind of punches them, kind of half destroys them uh, while he's making them, and then they actually get served to these actual customers. And so it becomes a social experiment. You know, how, how many of the, of the patrons are going to stand up to the bullies who are picking on this kid? And compared to how many are going to report the bullying of the sandwich, you know, in other words, uh, how many are going to take it back to the counter and complain about it? Uh, so, you know, spoiler alert, um, vastly more people complained about their sandwich. I think 95% of the people that were served these um, gross looking Whopper Juniors complained versus only 12% of, of the customers who tried to step in and stop the kid from being bullied um it sounds kind of like a goofy stunt talking about it but it was it was really well done and it ends on a pretty positive note uh because they had they had footage of several of the customers who did help out the kid uh they show them standing up to the bullies doing so you know in pretty remarkable fashion and they really come off kind of as heroes which gives this spot an uplifting feel at the end um despite the super discouraging statistics from earlier so um, let's just listen to a bit of the ad here where, where the customers uh, are standing up to the bullies. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. What's your name? Uh, Reese. Hi, Reese. We're just having fun. You having fun? He's not having fun. So therefore, I think you guys should just leave him alone. Clear. This feels better to me. Have you ever been like messed with before? Oh my god. Like the ideal world is where if somebody else sees like something weird happening that they'll come over and be like, hey, this is not okay. Yeah. So I think there's a few takeaways here. You know, Burger King is pretty committed to social causes lately, uh, and they're doing so uh, with with really great creative. You know, they had the Proud Whopper a few years ago. I, I think this is this new one's really powerful. Um, they've really put a stake in the ground, I think, in terms of purpose-based advertising, and, and they're you know they are coming up with creative ideas and executions that resonate in that space. Um, but secondly, I think this is important too, uh, and we've talked about this before. You know, purpose-based advertising doesn't necessarily have to be purely altruistic. You know, if you if you weave in your product or brand in the right way, it can be a, you know a powerful branding tool as well. Um, we saw this with a campaign like uh, Boost Mobile, Boost Your Voice, which was you know on the one hand it was about enfranchising uh, poor areas during the election, but it also actually brought people into the stores, so it had you know, a product story there. Um, you know, likewise, I think this BK stunt is really heavily branded, but not in a way that, that distracts from the message. You know, it takes place in a Burger King, first of all. It revolves squarely around a Burger King product. 
Uh, and for a stunt that's so product centric to also feel genuine and heartfelt, I thought that was a pretty cool trick. Um, so kudos to the agency, uh, David Miami, um, for another you know excellent BK spot in a year that's seen a bunch of them. What did you guys think of it? I think um, I I enjoyed it. I'm always kind of like hesitant about stuff like this because it sometimes can feel weird and gross for a brand to be hopping in on um, like a social cause. But this one, like you said, is it feels authentic. And I also think that the guy who played the um, Whopper bully was fantastic and so committed to his role to beating up these burgers. And I was a big fan. <laughs> Yeah, I like, is that a weird thing to say? I like no, the reaction that's, to that that's guy so too. Real. They're like, "You're yeah. so weird." All the guys are like, "You're so weird." What are you doing? It's so good. <laughs> Do you but have a also, problem? Like, when someone like uh, spoiler alert, when someone like brings up, it's weird to say spoiler alert about an ad, um, but when someone like brings up a Whopper. And it's, like, fully open, like, the packaging is open, and then he, like, slams his fist down (laughs) into the Whopper, and you can, like, see condiments on his knuckles. That, (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but it was like, oh, okay. I wonder how they they get the guys in, in a stunt like this who don't come off very well to sign the release form. Well, you're getting at my my beef, and this is um, Burger King has done several like stunts, real world, uh, you know, scenarios. Some are a lot more believable than others. This one is quite believable, but at the same time, every time I can see everyone's face, I'm just like, hmm, I don't know. Well, this is the, there's something about that aspect of it, but but that said, the interactions, especially the part at the end, is downright touching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I that ad takes a it takes a turn, you know. You really are, are you're like, oh, this is kind of a clever metaphor, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh man, she's really opening up. That's like, you know, there's some great moments at the end of this thing. Yeah, it's got a weird c- combination of really goofiness, like with the punching the the burger, but then also. Yeah, like it's kind of poignant at the end. Yeah, and also how like she, I don't know, her approach to it just felt really smart because she like brought her tray over and was just like, oh, this feels better, right? Like it, yeah. it felt um, sweet and 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 not condescending in a way that um, I think a bullying ad about like junior high could. I don't know. But almost too good yeah. to be true, David, according to you. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> I mean, it, the the fact that they were actors, you know, does... You, you, I'm sure they were not really prepared for how are going to people react? Are they going to run up and just start punching me, you know, if I'm pretending to beat up this kid? <laughs> and then, you know, she comes up and she shakes the, this woman uh, that we're talking about. She's uh, just a customer. She shakes the bully's hand and introduces herself. She's obviously trying to humanize it. Uh, yeah, it's just it's it's a great moment, but that adds definitely it takes a turn in a in a positive way, but it ends on a much brighter note than I that I a lot most of them would have just stopped with like only twelve percent of customers actually did anything positive. Everyone sucks. End of ad. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the other campaign, uh, the other campaign I wanted to talk about uh, was the the new Will Ferrell spots. Um, it's a campaign called Device Free Dinner. It's also a purpose based campaign. Uh, in a way, this is from Goodby Silverstein and Partners. It's for a nonprofit called Common Sense Media, which is uh, an organization that tries to monitor, you know, how how rapid uh, the evolution of technology, how it's affecting children and families, um, particularly when it comes to, 
you know, we have all these smartphones and other devices uh, that are taking up more and more of our attention and our life space. And, and like, what is that really doing to us? So, you know, the point of this particular campaign is kind of to shed light on on how people bringing uh, family members bringing smartphones to the dinner table um, might be ruining kind of the traditional family dinner time, which is, you know, like notoriously a place to connect with other people and not be not, you know, not be on your phone. Uh, the twist here is that um, Will Ferrell, uh, who plays the dad in the family, is is by far the worst offender uh, when it comes to ignoring everyone else at the table and uh, having his nose in the phone. So I think there are seven or eight ads. They all have kind of a similar theme. You know, the wife and kids are trying to connect with dad, but he's off in his own world. Uh, most of them are on YouTube, but one of them is actually running on Funny or Die, and it's kind of the more edgy one. Um, all the comedy in this series is kind of dark, but the Funny or Die version is even a little darker, a little edgier. So um, let's listen to that spot. So this is Will Ferrell starring in uh, Device Free Dinner um, for Common Sense Media. Oh, it's so nice to all be sitting down together. You can tell me something they did today. Um, I drew a horsey. Good for you, son. I started smoking. I love you too, sweetheart. I'm selling bongs out of our minivan. I got a tramp stamp. I'm getting implants. I'm dating your brother. Uh-huh. I'm cooking meth in the basement. Great idea, kiddo. That's why you're so popular at school. So, David, you and I were talking a little bit about how Will Ferrell kind of pops up in weird places. This one's kind of a random random one for him, but I thought it was pretty funny. Um, the only disconnect for me is that, you know, Common Sense uh, did a study that this campaign's kind of based around, and, and it's much more focused on how kids are, are using their smartphones more. Um, there's a bunch of statistics about um, mobile screen time for children under eight. Apparently, it's increased tenfold since 2001 when they were just spending just five minutes a day on a device. Now they're spending almost 50 minutes a day on a device. You know, so having Will Ferrell be the bad guy here is kind of a disconnect, uh, although I guess it's better than having a five-year-old be the villain. Uh, I, I, thought they were, <laughs> I thought they were pretty fun, though. Um, what did you guys think? Yeah, I, I would just say that I think you have to make him the villain because... So much of this is enabled by the adults, by the parents. Um, you know, we, I think like a lot of families, we have a, a no no phones at the table rule. It's very easy for my kids because they're too young to have phones. Uh, but it's also very easy, like if you're waiting on an important phone call or something, it's, it is very easy to bring it there. And you have to be, you have to draw the line. And I do think it's up to the parents to set that example uh, you know, because they can't just say like, oh, kids today. And then the parents are just as bad. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't have kids. So yeah. it's harder for me to relate to this. <laughs> I don't have a dinner table or a table <laughs> of any kind. So I cannot really respond to this question. <laughs> or children, just to clarify. Well, but but it, but to draw a better parallel, maybe like if you go out on a date or if you're like having a coffee or dinner with someone, what's your what's your take on like the standard? these days for acceptability of having a phone out? I think as long as you, you know, there's like some people I know that if you're having a conversation with them and they're on their phone, you have to wait until they're done scrolling their phone because they're just absolutely not listening to you. Um, so I think as long as you're able to like have your phone and maybe send a text and still communicate with the person you're with and not be rude and like ignore them. I think it's fine to have, you know, if I'm get, getting dinner with friends, we like all have our phones out, but um, as long as you're not being rude about it, I guess 
that's how I feel personally. I don't know, Christina, how you feel about it. Yeah, it's I I mean, it's pretty hard sometimes where I I'll like go home to Rhode Island and I'll see some friends for the first time in a while and it's like they're we're talking. I'm trying to engage with them in a way where it's rare because I'm not home all that often. And there's a phone and from a face. Yeah. And I can see what they're doing. And it's a bummer. (laughs) But I don't know. It's like, that's, that's where it bums me out a little bit more when it's like someone you haven't connected with in a while. Whereas like, my boyfriend and I, and I will like sit in bed sometimes scrolling on our phones, but I'm next to him most of the time. So I don't really care as much. <laughs> Maybe I should care. Uh, I don't know. You're that fine. feels like too revealing right now. Um, but yeah, I, I feel, guess. I feel like what's kind of interesting is that this is a issue that never gets talked about in, in advertising. You know, like maybe you'll have a, co- a comic scenario in a commercial where someone's on their phone and something happens to them, but it's never treated like a serious problem. And I think it's such a new problem that people don't ever stop to consider, like, actually how disconnected are we getting? And and in that sense, I think it's kind of interesting that it's got this big star attached to this campaign. You know, it's getting a lot of attention this week. T- TV shows have certainly kind of done a good job of keeping up with this trend. You know, you see whether it's uh, Big Little Lies or, you know, anything like the kids are always sitting there on their phone and they just kind of look up long enough to roll their eyes at the parents. <laughs> but, you know, it's like you get the sense that the parents are definitely just picking their battles on, uh, you know, I'll surrender family time if it means not fighting with my teenager. You know, the most famous ad that that had a, a kid, you know, with his nose in the phone was actually turned out to be a, a misdirect. It was that Apple ad from yeah. a couple of Christmases ago where he spends the entire holiday like on his phone, but it turns out he's making this heartwarming video about his family and how great they are. Which... Well, because a video about how great your family is is definitely better than actually spending time with your family. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's so dark. The, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I think I think a lot. I don't have a smartwatch, um, and I think back to when our boss Jim Cooper was on the podcast once, and we were talking about the Apple Watch, and he said he really likes it, except that when you look at it when you're talking to someone and you look at your watch to get to read a text message or whatever that just came across. It's just one of those things. It's a really kind of crappy thing to do to somebody to look at your watch while you're talking. It's extra rude. It's extra rude because it's like, I don't have time for this. Yeah, it's just a cultural thing, right? When you see someone look at your watch, you don't think, oh, they just got a message from their wife. You think like, this person is looking at their watch because they're so bored with this conversation. (laughs) They're more important than you. Don't you know that? That's true. Not (laughs) Most are. Um All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for rounding up the week's best ads. And it's time to move on to our special guest for the big discussion of the week. All right. uh, Super excited to move on to the next section uh, for our big discussion of the week. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about storytelling in the modern world, the modern marketing world, and how copywriting uh, works in that, and especially in this era where Content's very short form where content disappears, and there's a lot of debate about the effectiveness of storytelling. And to have that conversation, we are really excited to have from Barton F. Graff, senior copywriter Molly Wilkoff, and senior art director Zoe Kessler. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi. Hi. 
We are super excited to have you here uh, to talk about some of your killer campaigns recently and kind of what those say more broadly about copywriting and about storytelling. Um, and uh, you I, I, you were the team responsible not to jump ahead, but for the Yes Good campaign for Emerald Nuts, which if you go through the reviews of our podcast, and I think this is Tim's fault. We have this whole like string of reviews that just say Yes Good, like, <laughs> like we hired some kind of Ukrainian bot farm. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we were intending, actually, with that entire campaign. So great, perfect. All this good Russian, good ROI. Yeah, it's Russian subsidized meme to just take over. <laughs> um, all right, but first, I wanted to talk about your campaign for Hinge, uh, which is a dating app. Uh, I have to admit, because I've not been on the market since apps existed, or I think phones even existed. Uh, what is Hinge's like? What What's their thing? You know, Bumble has their women reach out first what 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 is what sets hinge apart yeah well i think initially it was a they're trying to move away from their initial build was um that they would match you with friends of friends but that's actually not what they're known for anymore they did like a new uh they rebuilt the whole app and now it's about um getting a little deeper with people so they have these prompts that basically bring out a little more um about you so the prompts are like um what's something you'd never tell your grandchildren or um, your biggest pet peeve, and they're supposed to reveal a little bit more about each user in order to get uh, down to a deeper level more quickly. So um, it's also built so that when you interact with the app itself, there's no swiping, and they have like a your easy. It's more easy to like start a conversation because there's um, there's stuff to talk about. Yeah, and and you're also like the way that you engage with somebody else is by replying to something they've said or a photo of them. So. Say the prompt says something like, what's your biggest pet peeve? And then um, your biggest pet peeve is when people clap when the plane lands or something, right? Um, say that's, a, that's something that you hate. I could reply to that if I'm, if I'm interested in that answer and be like, I hate that and I hate bowling shoes or whatever it is, right? Um, and so it just like starts a conversation that wouldn't necessarily have been there before. Otherwise on apps, there's a lot of like, hey, what's up? And like, haze, you know? And so it's like a... I think the short form of that is what they're known for is depth. They're, mo they're known for prompts. So did they provide you with some of these sample answers of what people did? Did you guys just play around in the app to kind of see what people were really putting in there? Yeah, we did both. Um, they gave us sort of like a master list of their questions and prompts. Uh, and then we went through people's profiles just to sort of get a feel of how people answered them. I mean, we've, we've also both answered these questions ourselves. So we have our own experience. Um, but yeah, we just kind of got a feel for what people do with the questions. So, uh, Tim, if you can set up a little bit uh, about kind of the the structure of the campaign, and then we will go back to Molly and Zoe on uh, kind of how this all came about. But uh, Tim, why don't you set us up on on how the how these ads ended up looking? Yeah, sure. Well, it, they are, it's an out of home campaign around New York City, and uh, three I think there are three or four billboards that are connected, they're kind of contextual, so they talk about sort of nearby establishments, and they feature kind of like long run-on sentences that have to do with uh, these prompts uh, that, that Molly and Zoe were talking about. So a prompt could be, what are your unusual skills? Or another prompt could be, um, what can't you live without? And so there's all these different prompts, and um, they wrote these ads. They're very striking visually. They're, they're, there's the, the Hinge logo, but then it's almost all text. And um, Molly could probably maybe read one of them to give you kind of a, a better idea of, of how they work. 
I would love to read one. Okay. This, I think, is my favorite. He said he used to have frosted tips and wear lots of puka shells. So maybe you'll reminisce about being 14 and solely crushing on guys with frosted tips and puka shells. And maybe this will be your chance to finally date one of those guys without actually having to date someone with frosted tips and puka shells, which is great for both 14-year-old you and current you. And that's why we ask questions like, what's the worst fad you've ever participated in? Because it makes for better matches and a better dating app. Which is all one sentence. <laughs> with, with, In the zero app. grammar with whatsoever. Zero punctuation. <laughs> which I like. Did you, uh, did you personally read these to the client at the, at the pitch? Yes. What was their initial response? Uh, I think they loved it right off the bat. Yeah. The, uh, I think that what they were drawn to the most was the contextual idea of like creating experiences out of dates. It's super important to them to do like experiential marketing. Um, and the, the idea of having um, an out of home ad that tells their like kind of a whimsical story and gives a lot of character to the app, but then also gives an idea of like how a certain deli could become part of a story of a relationship. I think they were really intrigued about. Um, having New York City be part of people's lives. So I'm, I'm curious about the contextual, you know, aspects that Tim mentioned of relating directly to the business that's that's next to the sign or that the that the outdoor board is on. How did you guys pick those? Were you part of the media selection process, or did you just find out where it was going to be and you built it around that? Um, Hinge actually did a really fun media buy uh, next to a lot of really great stuff. Uh, so we have a bowling alley, um, a bar, like a beer house, um, and then this really cool buy on a big corner on 7th Avenue in Commerce in West Village. So there's a lot of fun stuff around that to reference. So one of the ads says, for example, it says, she said, please, no karaoke. So maybe you'll suggest meeting at the last place that would ever have a have karaoke, a.k.a. the brew pub to your left. So and then the ad goes on from there. But so very early on in the ads, it points to some nearby establishment. I think there's three or four of these that do that. Yeah. So the idea was we I think our initial what we showed them initially to get them to buy off on the idea was just um, something that we chose. It was like a, an, an execution over like a corner deli. And um, and they liked it so much that they went and bought out of home for this. Uh, they didn't have this out of home buy originally. And um, we pushed them to do that. Um, and then once we received the um, the placements, we wrote based on that placement specifically, which is why they feel um, so seamless. So th- there's a lot of uh, debate these days, I think, about the, you know, whether the art director copywriter model, which goes back decades, whether that, that model still makes sense. I think everyone agrees partnership still makes sense, but it's just the the lines between these mm-hmm. creative roles has been blurring for so many years. So, Zoe, first, I'm just curious, what, you know, what was your role when you've got a very copy-heavy campaign you know, beyond the typography itself, what, you know, what what was your role in, in developing those ideas? Um, Molly and I are both our director copywriter, I think, for the most part. But um, on this on this one, um, definitely very copy heavy. Molly did the majority of the writing. Um, and then we sort of sit down and see how we can both make those stories stronger and more impactful. Um, the design of this was really important, obviously, because they need to be legible and, and – uh, and really highlight the fact that this is a big copy block. It was important to me to have it be, it look really approachable and be um, sort of like a, a magazine, like a page from a magazine. So we went with a with a serif typeface just because it's super fast, quick read. 
Um, they have an amazing brand guideline book. It's really beautiful, all their branding. Um, and so I had a lot of great uh, color blocks and, um, and vector elements to use that we just ended up landing on um, a really elegant like color and typeface pairing that I feel like is working. But um, in some of the postings, like some of the wild postings where it's maybe put up a little bit more messy, it's like a little bit, uh, it's not, I don't think those are working quite as well as the others, but I think the contextual ones are are, are doing really well. I think people are reacting really nicely to those. Yeah, I love long copy and out of home because it's so like counterintuitive. Like out of home, That's exactly, yeah. out of home yeah. is supposed to be like five words. <laughs> and then yeah, you totally. come around the corner <laughs> and you see like 105 words and you're like, what the hell is that? Yeah, that's exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah, I think that that React, that's like what the app is also doing. It's one of those things where this is supposed to be everyone in dating apps is talking about how easy it is and the ease of swiping and finding somebody awesome. And when you really think about what that, what those apps are doing, it's only making it more difficult. And I think Hinge, Hinge's main objective is to get people to try a little bit harder and like give a little bit more time to this process. And I think that the out-of-home reflects their, what they're thinking. Yeah, that's really interesting how it kind of embodies the brand in the sense that, you know, you, sh- you should work a little harder if you're going to have some re- some rewards from something like this, which is really, you know, it's, it's great when, when you know, the format of something kind of embodies like what you're trying to say or what your, what your ethos is. Right, and we also were lucky that we're dealing with foot traffic in New York, so we, we could play with a few more words than we would usually do, so it was really fun. Yeah, don't put this on a billboard, like, outside Austin or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We haven't ruled it out, so... <laughs> Let's talk uh, long-form copy because this is maybe I'm getting wonky here, but in the in the creative circles, as you both know very well, long-form copy is one of those things that creative directors often fetishize it, especially if they came up in the magazine industry. They always talk about how the it's still being done, and they'll pull out these like annuals and show you, you know, the one spec long form campaign <laughs> that they thought was really cool but to me you know I was a, I am a writer I was a copywriter and I hate long form copy in general because it's so self indulgent and I, I feel like you found an approach that makes it about the reader and, and that seems to versus like you're not just reading the story of of Bass Pro fishing shops or something right i think it's that we gave a very concrete personality to the brand um and we're putting you in the moment which i think also really helps so it's almost about you more than about, you know, me, the writer, hearing my own voice. Um, so I think that really helps. Yeah, and it's barely about the product. Like, you, you obviously, you tie right. it in really well at the end, but it's not like you're like, let us tell you the story of Hinge. Right, right. We were really careful not to do that. We wanted to kind of get you to stop and be invested uh, because this board was actually talking to you. And we thought, you know, if we start with the product no one's going to keep reading past the first sentence or the first, you know, 20 words. Um, that was that was part of the that was part of the design thought too. I think the idea that people would walk by something that looked like an ad and we really wanted some foot traffic, some stopping power. And so not having like available in the App Store was a decision that we made as a team and like the um the only like the only speak mention of the, of it being a dating app is at the end of this long story. And we really loved that, that there was like whimsy in the story that you could grab onto before knowing that you were reading an ad. Uh, tell us about the tagline, the let's be real. Was that an easy one to sort of land on? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we, we were playing around in the idea of being more real, being your best self, and being more of yourself. Um, and their sort of like brand ethos is surrounds the idea that when you are real, you find something real. And, um, and so, yeah, we, this word real is like a yeah. really difficult, like awkward thing to. I think, yeah, like in any other situation, you know, we wouldn't use the word real, but it's also just the way we talk about relationships now that it felt kind of perfect for this. Yeah. Um, and we, and we want the brand so badly to be like talking with our customers, you know, like having a real conversation with people. And so to have that conversational tone is was like part of the entire thing. It's really important to us that the tagline also embodies the brand. Well, and I feel like the timing of this campaign is so perfect because there's just so much negativity around the nightmare hellscape of dating, of dating apps. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, this is a frequent topic. Obviously, we have a, a range of ages and life, you know, moments at the, in the Adweek office. But man, the more people describe dating, just the more horrible <laughs> it sounds. And, yeah. and so I'm curious, like, did you guys feel like you're kind of on the side of the angels here of like trying to? Well, <laughs> a little bit. Um, I think the founder of Hinge is very clear that he's very pro dating. I mean, we were told this is a positive brand. Like, we're not going to we're not going to tell you bad things about dating. We think dating's amazing. Uh, and we think it's amazing when you use Hinge. So we just wanted to tell a different story than what everyone's been hearing. Um, I think, I mean, the biggest thing is there's no swiping, which I think really gets rid of a lot of the horror stories that come along with Hinge. Um, but we also thought it would be interesting to tell you the story you don't usually hear about dating apps. Yeah, and it makes it less about visual affirmation of like, you know, right. someone agrees that I look interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other apps are a lot about like this, this like kind of it being like a, your immediate approval, like I, I get a match on a, on Tinder and I, I know someone thinks my face is pretty. That's like a really great thing. But then ultimately I never hear from them or I never reach out because it's really not yeah. about that on other apps. And I think for them it was a lot about like looking past some superficial things. Right. Um, I mean, and also, what do you say when someone likes your face? Right. You know, what do you, what's your first message going to be? Right. So... Hinge really helps with that part, too. Um, I do want to make sure we save time to talk about uh, Yes Good, uh, one of the mm -hmm. most fascinating campaign lines in, in recent history. <laughs> uh, for Emerald Nuts, uh, we have talked about this on the podcast several times, but uh, remind us the the background of that. This came from online reviews, right? Well, I was, I was talking the other day and thinking it's so funny that we did this for Hinge because for Yes Good, we didn't write our own tagline. Yeah. So for Hinge, it was like, we're just going to make up with it, make up for it with like hundreds and hundreds of words now. Uh, we can't then, actually write our tagline. Yeah, we, we, we like can't write taglines. Yet, but so, uh, yeah, Zoe, do you want to talk about Yes Good? Sure. Um, so we were, we were tasked by the client to come up with a way to talk about the product. This like, they are relentless in their pursuit of like, a great quality and like they are they really badly wanted to talk about how much how superior their nuts were to other brands which is just like funny to even say out loud um but they <laughs> they really have this like passion for um for flavor and for quality and so um we were really like everything started to feel a lot like we were talking at people like just trust us we are the best like for real like look at all the things we do and a lot of brands get into that like hard area where it feels a lot like preachy and like not really like we we didn't get it we don't get you guys and um 
I think with all of our work, we try really hard to make it feel like we like the customer is part of the experience, part of right. the part of the ad. And so, in this case, they literally were. We were looking on Amazon for some inspiration for ads, and just found all of these exceptional reviews about right. the um, about the brand. And we just felt we were totally inspired by some of the things people were saying, and then that turned into a campaign review of reviews, which is where we turned um, some of those exceptional reviews into art and content and short films and um, stuff for social. And then, of course, we found like the best review of them all, which was just yes, good. And, um, and we, we fell in love with it. We fell in love, and we didn't know how to make it big enough to really feel like it was making the impact that it had on us. And so we just convinced the client somehow to make it their tagline. And uh, and yeah, it, it's blown up. We did an out of home campaign and a um, some stuff on social, and we're giving away merch and like it's a whole thing. And hopefully. We'll do another round of that, but we're not sure what is coming up in the future for yeah. Yes Good. I think also when we were looking at the Amazon reviews, it was almost like we were trying to keep the brand honest. Like, you know, what are people actually saying about this brand? And people really, really love them. And they say a lot of weird stuff about them, <laughs> uh, which was really fun to find. So, Tim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there is a recurring theme that some of the best taglines are almost a little bit grammatically inaccurate you know like we, we <laughs> or a lot yeah or, or, or very much the um but you know we forget that got milk is grammatically wrong you know well <laughs> apparently be, uh, yeah the, the milk board was said well we can do do you have milk yeah <laughs> might you have milk some milk board. that's so. just as good yeah <laughs> do you have milk do you have milk these are very good and i want them yes that's like the camp- the version of the campaign running in england says do you have milk <laughs> but you, you know They're way more polite there i feel like you have to that's almost like a, a certain wall you have to break through because otherwise yeah it is just a generic expression and and i think yes good like joins the those kind of storied ranks of it sounds so weird when you say it and yet it feels so natural to just be a guest. Right. Yeah. It's I mean, so much fun to say. I mean, you can put it in your vocabulary. It's great. <laughs> what I liked about it is it, it's, it seems really stupid, but it's actually really smart. You know, it's this thing that actually stands out and it's fun. And it's, I'm sure it's, you know, easier to art direct. It's such a short line and, and it stands <laughs> out. And, and I don't know, it's got this, also got this data underpinning. You know, it's based on listening to the customer and, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of this evidence that you can be silly and serious kind of at the same time. And, you know, I think the best brands kind of do that. I think you could even argue that like a brand like Apple, like its downward trajectory in some of its ads over the past few years is because they kind of stopped being silly and they only, they just only, now they're only deadly serious, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think when you can do both, you're kind of more flexible. I, I think that's actually... Not to get weird, but this is kind of a thing that separates Adweek, too, from some competitors, is that we kind of do silly and serious at the same time, you know, yeah. not to pat ourselves on the back. Well, <laughs> you know, I think we have a keen we have a keen uh, understanding that the world we cover is not exactly like saving lives and, you know, b- yeah. building bridges here. It's, it's, you know, you have to embrace the ridiculousness uh, of a lot of this. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, th- was there... You know how receptive was the client to Yes Good? Did they they yeah. loved it right away? Oh, I mean, wow. they got it right okay. away. They, yeah. I mean, we were trying to come up with what he could possibly mean by yes and what he could have meant by good for right. each product. I mean, it was 
they just immediately were attracted to it, which is super fun. Yeah, and the thought of, like, it being bigger than just a tagline, like, it was almost a, like, blessing in disguise that we didn't know who this guy was because it became this big, like, search, like, how can we find this guy um, and try to reward him and reward our customers for saying such great things about us, you know? It's, like, really tying a brand directly to the people that are eating and writing about their product. At this point, I imagine that, that if you hire Barton F. Graff that you're probably expecting kind of an unconventional uh, <laughs> approach to a brief. Is, is that fair to say? I mean, yeah. I think that's. I think the hope is that everything that comes out is really smart. And if that means that it's funny uh, or, um, or more earnest, I think um, we're sort of broadening our range a little bit more now than we were years ago. But um, we're doing a lot of cool work for Bullet that feels a little more earnest, but it, it always comes from a place of like really smart and right for the brand. So um, I think, yeah, you're you're going to get something that you haven't seen, but I think that's the goal of every agency. This is a terrible word, but I would call all our work interesting. I yeah. mean, it's just, you know, just left of center. It's it's not not what you're used to seeing. That's going to be the new the the new BFG tagline. It's just going to be the whole thing she just said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to edit that down. <laughs> it's just going to be that. It's sort of left of center. Yeah. It's going to be that. And I'm then really dot, good at dot, talking. Dot. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I did want to uh, save a little time to talk about some uh, big picture things, and uh, even though we only have a few minutes left, um, but. I guess the the reason that we wanted to have you both on here is because obviously we we've joked about it, but these two campaigns really are the extremes of the kind of storytelling that's not only possible today, but that's largely enabled by the technology that I think a lot of creatives see as an obstacle or that brands see as like these are these are stumbling blocks to get over. You you know your campaigns really embraced both of those things and turned them into positives. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, do you feel that there is a kind of a pessimism about storytelling in modern marketing? Or do you feel that people are kind of moving past that feeling of, oh, things are too ephemeral? And, uh, you know, it, mm. are they getting on board with the, these kinds of ideas? I think that millennials in general, and I hate to even use the word millennials, but I do feel like people our age are um, are really hungry for something that does that is like curated and takes a little bit of time, you know, and I, I think it's because it's in contrast to all of how fast everything is moving. It's like, a, I'm used to being able to just Google whatever I want. And I at, have everything at my fingertips, that when something is um, handmade, or like, really, there's care thoughtful. taken, yeah, something thoughtful is always a breath of fresh air, I think. And there's, I think, going to be a resurgence of, of this kind of craft and like, taking time to really like get to know a brand. Um, and it's, also, it's, yeah, it's yeah. difficult to do, but I, but I don't think that, um, I think it's, it's harder to push against what is uh, like as a barrier, as opposed to just embracing it and making it work for you. The other thing I wanted to uh, ask is whether uh, whether you have any advice. Uh, this is a question that we get quite a bit when we open up to our listeners and to our readers. Uh, a lot of people coming into the industry uh, are understandably skeptical or, or concerned about kind of the state of advertising, state of agency, state of marketing. What's your advice for cre aspiring creatives who are either now in college or just coming out? Uh, you know, what, what's your kind of career advice for them? We all, I mean, the two of us kind of had um, non-traditional introductions to this career. So I think part of it is just, I mean, you can take any road you want to get here. It'll only make you more interesting. Mm -hmm. So like find other stuff you can do, uh, do stuff on the side, just be an interesting person. I can't wait. 
can't believe I said that word again. Interesting. Oh. I do oh. feel like I do feel like side projects and things that you're like being a passionate person about whatever it is is going to be attractive no matter what you're doing. So I think that if there's um, uh, you're writing on the side or you're painting on the side or whatever there is, I think those things, even though they feel like they're not directly related to advertising, are always going to influence how you make work. And I think that that's going to help you broaden strokes a little bit. I think also what Zoe and I do is um, try to think of the audience in a new way, Mm -hmm. you know, less talking at them, more talking with them, to them, that sort of thing. It's it's kind of funny how much the career advice sounds like dating advice. You know, like like <laughs> so much of it's just that is something we don't have. So no. I I can't say that that I'm successful on that front. But work. It's things. like you know, embrace your passions and and you know, really <laughs> you know, ma- lean into what makes you you and all the. Because you're right. I think yeah, those are really advice that, that I always give yeah. people is just don't be ashamed of the weird crap you do <laughs> on the side because it's it sets you apart from all the people who are like I write ads. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think having those things at all is a plus. I think there are a lot of people that are worried about in their book just like having a print ad or like something that proves they can do do things. And I think um, just ideas, big ideas are what, what creative directors and CCOs are looking for. They're looking for someone who has thinking that isn't like other people's thinking. Yeah. Just to kind of piggyback on that, though, I I feel like headlines are still going to be important in your book. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, when you hire a copywriter, you got to make sure they can write. Yep. Um, but yeah, nice balance is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Molly Wilkoff, senior copywriter at Barton F. Graff, and Zoe Kessler, a senior art director at Barton F. Graff, thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you for having yeah. us. Thanks, so much. We hope we didn't talk too much to you guys. No, we sometimes do that. I'm- I'm better at writing words than saying words. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. Molly's actually been um, reading off sheets the entire time. Oh, it would be so much better had I been reading off of a sheet, but yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both. Uh, don't forget, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also get turned into ad campaigns by Barton F. Graff. So they mean a lot. (laughs) I'm David Greiner with Adweek, and we will talk to you next week.